0: This episode is brought to you by Bend a
1: Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Learn more at bendatable.com. That's b-e-n-t-o-t-a-b-l-e.com. And when you use code H R N for a new subscription, you get twenty dollars off, and we at H R N get ten bucks. <laughs> cooking issues this is Dave Arnold your host of cooking issues coming to you pre-recorded on the Lower East Side of Manhattan got Nastasia the Hammer Lopez chilling in Stanford at her house how you doing Stas good yeah we got uh Matt in his uh in his little hidey hole COVID booth up in uh Rhode Island how you doing
0: I'm good except I'm actually back in Brooklyn
1: why what
0: uh, <laughs> who comes back to new tomorrow? york we, 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 we should not waste precious minutes on this but, yeah. <laughs> all right all right all
1: right and uh and of course uh you know uh bdx uh bdx you know newcomer extraordinaire john nahul also there uh and he's going to play a big part because he is a huge fan of the guests that we have on uh today john how you doing you're chilling in, the, in the upper east right there yeah Murray Hill, yep Wait, so Murray Hill? You really think that Murray Hill has a distinct thing going on, as opposed to just? I guess it's kind of—it's not the Upper East, for sure. And it's—it's it's definitely mid-town. not Upper East. It could, yeah, like it could be very lower midtown. But what else would you call it? What's the difference between a turtle? What's the difference between a turtle, a Kips, and a, and a, and a Murray Hill? What's the difference between all of these things? Who I don't is know, Murray? Just really small neighbor. I, I don't know. But to, to stick with Matt, what Matt was saying earlier, we should probably refocus on the yeah. show. All right. I'm just curious. <laughs> anyway, and then we have two very special uh, guests on today. We have uh, Richie from uh, – you know him as Our Cook Quest on both Twitter and uh, Instagram. And uh, he lives up in Boston. I've known him for a long time. He's helped out the Museum of Food and Drink. Uh, on many occasions with his uh, engineering skills, but over there, uh, Rich, how many years have you been, well, well, and and Jeremy Omaski from Larder in Cleveland and other things, and they have come together and written a new book, which is out at the end of the week, called Koji Alchemy, and it is the very, very first book solely devoted to using Koji in the English language. So if you don't know what Koji is, just wait because you actually do know what Koji is, and you've been eating Koji-related things since forever, and, um, you know, even if you do know what Koji is, I guarantee you, you have not, unless you're one of, like, unless they have asked you to be a contributor in their book, you have not used Koji the way they have used Koji, so, you know, you stick around and listen to what's going on, but why don't you two, each one, Rich, you go first, maybe. Um, why don't you tell us kind of how long you've been kojiing around and then like how you guys got together to do the book?
2: All right. Um, so, yeah, it's a pleasure to be on the show, Dave. Um, I don't remember exactly when I first started playing with the koji, but it was, it's probably on the order of several years now. Um, it was just one of those things that I happened upon when I was hanging out with a chef friend of mine who was interested in learning how to make koji for a particular presentation and he uh, knew my technical aptitude for just figuring things out. Did a little bit of research, uh, found Brandon Byers, um, his handbook on fermentation, reached out to him and he helped me figure out uh, a very simple koji rig just to get started making it. And then I just started investigating ideas on uh, basically looking at starches, proteins in whatever fashion and marrying them together to leverage the enzymes to create uh, crazy flavors that I really enjoyed just figuring out. And then, uh, as I was going through this process, you know, on, on social media, as I always have with all my creations and ideas and interest in learning, I shared what I was doing and happened upon Jeremy and his, his uh, adventurous ideas of curing meat with koji. And we just struck up, uh, struck up this um, you know, friendship through sharing ideas and enthusiasm and continuing to, to grow together and learn more and interact with everybody who is excited about this product and the possibilities. And that's how we kind of came to have the idea of writing this book together.
1: Hmm. And Jeremy, how long have you been on the Koji train? Uh, it seems like forever uh but uh i I want to see uh,
3: 2014 um yeah you know i was asked to make some miso and at at that point i'd already been fermenting and meat curing and all that that lovely stuff and and uh you know thinking that i knew i could just go ahead and make some miso like it was any other fermented food i i uh that wasn't the case and i just totally fell
1: down the koji rabbit hole Completely. You know, I have this thing with rabbit holes because in my mind, I've been thinking, (laughs) Like honestly, like for like a a month, anytime someone says to me that they've gone down the rabbit hole, in my mind, I'm thinking, are you sure it's not a rat's nest? Are you sure there's a (laughs) rabbit down there? (laughs) Uh, Be careful, Dave, sometimes there's a a honey badger. Yeah, right? I mean like, (laughs) dude, if you live out near a forest, right some b- big weird things dig holes in the ground it's people let me tell you it is not probably <laughs> it is not a rabbit down that hole i'm just telling you that right now Dude, if you're digging story. just be careful that's all i'm the saying movie? Flash, flash funny morning? funny story La-
3: last like, yeah, summer i of had a of bunch of chanterelles in the forest yeah and totally stuck my hand in a rabbit hole i need a <laughs> A, a yellow jacket nest. Oh,
1: Jesus. so much.
3: <laughs> I've got like 10 pounds of chanterelles on my back. I'm like, you know, moving stuff around and pick some more. In the yellow jacket's nest, start getting stung. I trip over a log next to me and fall into a patch
1: of nettles. Oh, man. <laughs> I love your luck, man. You have the best luck. You have the best luck. Make- I, I've only ever once, like... Uh, really pissed off a yellow jacket nest, but unfortunately I was in full chainsaw gear. So like, I didn't know I had done it until I saw them inside of my face mask.
3: Oh
1: Oh my God. God. And that's when I started getting stung. And I was like, ah, yeah, listen, honestly, dude, things that are on the ground, like holes in the ground, beware, there's a reason that people since time immemorial have been afraid of holes in the ground. It is probably not a rabbit. Saying that, um, so um, you know who knows. I mean, anyways, uh, where, where were you talking? Oh yeah, yeah. So listen, before we go uh, too far, but when you're starting on miso, like who did you have to go to at that at that time? Were you were you were using the shirtleaf uh, uh, miso book? Like, what was there for you to go to at the time? Yeah, just on the yeah,
3: yeah. That that's essentially what it was. Someone brought me a copy of the book, uh, the book of miso. And was like, hey, can you make some miso using chickpeas? And handed me the book. And I said, sure. Um, And then, uh, you know, I realized I I need this mold. And I got to order spores. And where do I get them? And, you know, all the things that a lot of people getting into working with Koji who aren't familiar with it go through. Um, And it, it took me, it probably took me longer to figure out where to get everything I needed to get and what to get then it actually took me to like incubate that first batch of koji and then like mix the miso.
1: Yeah. Well, and the book of miso is a great book. I mean, we've talked about both that book and the book of tofu, but they were printed quite a long time ago and they're not really written from a chef or even really a cook's perspective. They're more of a save the world kind of perspective and they're great. So I don't want to take anything away from them. But there, there's definitely a need out there for more information uh, than is in it. Oh, and uh, Jeremy, I don't know if you know Nastasia. I know Rich does already. But anytime you can say the word spore, you're hurting <laughs> Nastasia's inner core. And so you should try to say spore as much as possible. And if you can do it like this, spore. If you can just say it like spores, <laughs> like that will like really make my life better. There's a term... That you know, friends of mine and Nastasia and Peter Kim, who was the you know was running the Museum of Food and Drink and was this show's favorite punching bag. I don't know if we talked about this on air. <laughs> Astassi, we talked about the term he came up with on air. Uh, a punching bag. No, 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 no. The, the, the term, the term that he came up with just for oh, you. Oh, oh, the, uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I'll mention it again. It's called okay. You're from, everyone's familiar with Schadenfreude, right? Schadenfreude is the German term for getting pleasure out of other you know, it's like pain pleasure so the the pleasure you get out of other people's kind of pain schadenfreude so peter coined stasenfreude which is specifically the joy that nastasia gets when other people are going through troubling times but it's it's specifically <laughs> the joy that she gets out of it because wow. for her it's fuel for life like I, like I've had bad things happen to me over the course of the years that one bad thing happens to me and that is fuel for her to continue living for like two months. It's Dang, amazing. That's not true. I don't like it when you get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Is it, um, is it only,
2: but, but two months seems like such a long time.
1: Yeah. Well, it has to be really good. It doesn't have to be physical hurt either. In fact, she prefers emotional hurt. Oh uh,
3: yeah. She, yeah. She
2: loves emotional emotional over physical.
1: (laughs) What? Emotional over physical? Yeah. 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 Preferred. Come on, man. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, she's, you know, she's a, 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 what's it called? She's an evolved individual. Like, emotional pain is always greater than physical pain, right? True. Because physical pain, you can forget. That's why people have more than one baby. But. Emotional pain, man. You can scar people for life. Know what I mean, yes. Anyway, um, no wow. I'm saying. Um, so to go back, so Jeremy, uh, since you were the last person here to talk about Koji, I've we're remiss. Why don't you describe using the word "spore" as much as possible? Because I think that <laughs> I think that it's uh, people get confused with Koji because in general. Like we, we here in the U.S. anyway, use it to refer to the mold, the, uh, the mold grown on a substrate and the process of doing all of that and then anything that has any of those things in it. It's kind of like the word smurf. You just use it for all of these different things. But I feel if you just give a little short explanation and part of your book is talking about this, maybe you can help people understand more what's going on.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, so first uh, you got to keep in mind, this is a, this is a mold. This is a fungus. I mean, whether you got a picture of a a cremini or an oyster mushroom in your head, uh, or you've got a picture of those, those cruddy leftovers in the back of your fridge, uh, this is kind of related to all those. And, and these also, they, they all start off with a spore. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. it's It's interesting too so fungi are a separate kingdom of life from us and from plants and if we go back far enough in in the evolutionary history of all this, um, we actually see too that we are more closely related to fungi than plants are. Most people see you know we use mushrooms culinarily as we use a vegetable um, so based on that a lot of people associate them as as being more closely related. But the steak that you're cooking the mushrooms with is more closely related. And we are more closely related. So the spore is actually akin to like our um, uh, our sperm and our egg. Oh, you're really um, doing I, it
1: to Nastasia now. Now. That, that's, <laughs> that's kind of what it is. It's not like
3: the zygote, but it is like the sperm and the egg just before they they, they meet in bliss. Um, yeah. You know, what, what happens is um, they, they, the spore, it lands on a substrate and it starts to grow. Um, now, for all intents and purposes of kind of like translating from a highly codified um, way of doing things and, and a, a, a culture surrounding Koji, you know, in the book, we kind of we break this down. We say, listen, and in, in all these other cultures, whether it's the Japanese, the Chinese, the Koreans, the parts of India, Burma, wherever it is that they use these molds, they all have their own languages for these. And that's whereas us as outsiders and newcomers, you know, anywhere from nine to two thousand years late to the party, um, we kind of need more of a, a condensed version of what they're talking about. Uh, because they're so far ahead of us. So, um, you know, to kind of touch on what you said, Dave, like koji can mean these so many, many things. And And in English, we kind of rely on the context of what we're talking about in general to determine what koji actually means. If I'm using the word spore in the sentence, then I'm talking about like these spores, these seeds of koji. Um, if I am talking about making uh, an amino paste something like a miso and I say take your Koji and mix it with your beans then we want people to be able to infer through their working knowledge that we're talking about a grain a starch that's been cultured with these spores and the mold has grown um, so you know we we have a whole section in the book I', I I believe it's called creating a common Koji language. And the purpose of this is to kind of, as newcomers come into the fold, we have something we can all commonly talk about and commonly relate with. And then as each of us gets further into our expo- exploration with this mold and its uses, then we can like full outright like honor tradition, talk about these, these molds and their applications and the foods that are made with them within specific context. Um, but just getting your feet wet, there's so much out there. It's so confusing. We just needed an initial, um, you know, condensation or, or cohesiveness that that allowed people to to work with it and talk with it and understand what everybody's talking about.
1: Right. So let me see if I get this. Let me see if I get this right. And kind of what the presentation of the of the the book is. We'll talk more about the structure of the book in a second. So so fundamentally, we're like when you, when you're talking about koji, you're talking about one of several different strains of uh, are they are they all aspergillus or is there is there one other that you use it's not an aspergillus but they're all aspergillus strains right for, and for the most, yeah what well, yeah for the most part right we, yeah we can lump like the tempeh molds in
3: there like res you know um, all right, all which right. yeah so we, yeah
1: any of these filamentous molds right so there's these molds and what's funny about them funny is that many of them uh do, are toxic. In other words, not themselves toxic, but they produce what's called mycotoxins, which are, uh, you know, or I forget, whether they myco or are they afla, I forget which one they do. But anyway, so they produce t- toxins, not the ones that we use in cooking, right? But other wild ones. But somehow for thousands of years, people have inoculated or they've created the environments where these ones that are beneficial to flavor and to the longevity of a preserved product can thrive. And for whatever reason, you know, thank goodness, maybe that's why everyone's still alive. But for whatever reason, the evil ones tend not to grow on these kind of on these substrates when they're treated in a, in a particular way. Would you say that's accurate? Pretty, It's pretty damn close. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's- so what happens is, is you grow this, uh, you grow this mold on uh, a substrate. Let's just choose one, a, a starchy substrate with you know with some protein and sh- whatever other sugar stuff in it. Let's say rice and then uh, or soy, and then you that will change the substrate you're growing on. But more importantly, it is a source of enzymes that can then do further reaction. It's those enzymes, and it's the broad spectrum of and so we. Th- so the most important things ever, right? Are in terms of this kind of in terms of al- so your book's called koji alchemy, but other alchemical things. You got your yeast, you got your acetobacter, you got your um, you got your amylase enzymes from things like uh, barley. And what else is is even close to being as important worldwide as koji? Anything? We were talking about this before, Rich. What else? Is, what else is on that I list?
3: Lactobacillus, you know. Yeah, lact. Yeah,
1: lab, Yeah, lactobacillus. What uh, else? Yeah, that's it, though, right? Pretty much. Yeah. So, like in the in the West, where we had like a boat ton of barley sitting around, and we figured out malting barley pretty early. A lot of our starch conversion of the enzyme we were using was. Um, amylase enzyme, the enzymes that turn starch into sugar so that we can then ferment it, like that was an important uh, enzyme. Whereas um, in places where koji was kind of, you know, the, the most important thing, you have amylase enzymes there. But unlike amylase enzymes from barley malt, let's say, koji has a, a shotgun spray of crazy enzymes, right? And also, a, there's, there are very few byproducts of barley malt enzymes. In other words, it takes starch, busts the starch down into smaller uh, into smaller dextrins and sugar. Whereas, because uh, koji is a is a mold, is a fungus, it is producing its own byproducts of being alive, which are flavors, and then in addition produces enzymes which continue to act. On the product, even past their own life cycle, so it's kind of like a, a wham wham. It's like a wham 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 wham. There's like a lot of stuff going on with koji, so there's a lot of complexity in, um, I don't know whether you want to call them. You want to call them ferments? What do you want to call them? Koji recipes. There's a lot of complexity built into them that isn't necessarily built into a straight enzyme action, like um, like you get in a barley malt, or even what we would call a straight. Uh, like yeast action, right? Because the, the, what happens in a fermentation in a wine, let's say with yeast, is extremely complicated, and there's lots of yeast byproducts and the, the the breakdowns of flavor precursors and whatnot in in grapes and whatever else is super nuanced and super important, but nowhere near the broad spectrum kind of you know fist fight of what's going on in in a, in a koji situation. Would you agree? Uh, oh yeah, and, and
3: you know maybe Rich wants to touch on this a little more, but. We had this discussion intensively when it comes to like this term autolysis, like this enzymatic breakdown of things, which is often associated with decomposition. Um, you know, what do we call, like you said, koji barrages with enzymes and then the koji's dead, but the enzymes are in the food. What do we call it then?
1: Yeah, I don't know. What do you call it?
3: We we just we in the book we use the word autolysis. Like we had to we had to make a decision of like what what do we call it? You know, um, you so know. So for those paying
1: attention, autolysis is not what Vladimir Putin is or is doing. <laughs> it is when it is when something contains the products within itself to break itself down over time. Would you agree? Yeah, like think think decomposition. Think something
3: dies. Like the enzymes in your cells break apart things. Uh, you know, there's also you know black soldier flies and fungi and stuff that that fall in but internally decomposition is, is an autolytic reaction koji does something and other fungi do something called extracellular digestion where they grow on something and they just like lick it and smear it and make it moist with all their enzymes they're producing they're coming from an external source but like i said like what happens when the koji's dead and we're left with these enzymes that aren't Enzymes from inside the bean, per se, or inside the rice—they're smattered on by by the koji, and it's still working. They're still breaking things down. They're, you know, you know.
1: In the book, we d- we decided to use the term autolysis to also encompass that. Right, right. Uh, by the way, you're really—I don't know—Nastasia may never use soy sauce again.
2: <laughs> I don't even know why I'm <laughs> on this show. It's so disturbing. <laughs> I
0: really the use of lick it smear it make it moist really put us right? all over the top.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I'm now yeah. I'm doing a video in my head like a like a like a Chakarone style video where like it's just those words <laughs> are going in the background. You know what I mean? And we can get that guy. Uh, <laughs> what was his name? El Chombo. What was it? We got to get that guy. We'll do a video about smearing and licking. Anyway. Um, <laughs> So, before we get into kind of buying Koji and where it is another... So, and for those of you that, like, you know, still have no idea what we're talking about, well, uh, is it, this food. is the thing behind sake. It's the thing behind um, any kind of, uh, like, shoju, shoshu. It's, it's behind right, right. soy. It's behind miso. Like, everything, right? Like, what else? Like, just name some stuff that, that, that miju, Koji is behind.
3: Koji jang, miju... Um, um, yeah, I mean, it, basically we can say like 95% of the alcohol that come out of Asia and Southeast Asia are made with this. Anything that's like a soy sauce, a shoyu, a tamari, any of that stuff, uh, misu, gojujang, duchi, um, Rich, you got some more? Is the mold uh, on a
1: katsuobushi,
3: a koji or not? It is, it is. I believe that's Aspergillus Reparans or
1: Glaucus, but it, it, it is. It is so
3: they,
1: yeah. Isn't so Glaucus the bad guy from Flash Gordon? Isn't he the one of the Merciless's generals? Well, yeah, and Glaucus, yeah, I think so. But Glaucus itself
3: too is like, we can't, it's really hard to get in the United States. It's a controlled substance.
1: Can you scrape it off of Kasu and uh, culture it?
3: I'm sure you can, and I'm, I'm willing to bet that's where a lot of people have gotten it.
1: So, all right, so let's, let's talk about that for one, for one second thing, because, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, you could go to kind of your local Japanese market, and, and if you asked really nicely, and if they paid attention to you, they had one or two packets of stuff, and they, there was no choice. There was only one thing you could get, and that's, that was it. That was all. But now that the state is different, right? People where people can people go to get into this?
2: Yeah, in terms of buy um, the
1: actual spores.
2: um, So to buy the spores, um, we typically uh, recommend that people go to gem cultures. Um, They've been around for a very long time. If you look at their website, it's fairly, um, you know, archaic, Um, probably something that you would see, um, you know, around the late 80s in terms of a website. But it's, and you also, what you do is you basically email them and they send you uh, a PayPal uh, based on your order. So it's, it's the easiest way that we've found to be able to get a direct source um, um, retailing uh, from, from Japan. Uh, And uh, they have different, you know, they have all the very basic, um, you know, types of spores that are uh a cut that are customized for each specific make so if you wanted to make say pickles or amazake there's a specific one called light rice miso light rice miso uh oh sorry light light rice koji or if you wanted to get one for soy sauce or shoyu um, or miso so there's they have very specific categories for um, whatever it is that you want to make Uh, but essentially we like to recommend that people just buy the light rice miso um, light rice um, Koji option to be able to start um, with whatever they want uh, because it functionally it has plenty of protease enzymes uh, if you want to just buy koji well, you're saying
1: you're saying that although there's vast differences between the koji's it's better to learn how to use one and then and then later branch out if you feel like you want a specifically different thing right out of any, anything because like is, is, isn't that what you said in the book
2: yeah that's 100%. exactly right.
1: The, the the light rice miso spores from
3: Gem Cultures, um, it's it's like a broad spectrum. So whether you want to do an amino paste or you wanna do sake or uh, amazaki, whatever it is, you've got enough amylase production and enough protease production to pretty much make any food you want at at an acceptable and delicious
1: level. So but let's talk a little bit about. So you you want to start with the the white rice koji, and, and it's a good place. And I always say to people, like with hydrocolloids, even which is you know far simpler because the stuff happens much faster. Choose one, use it a lot, get to know it, and then if you feel like you need to branch out, branch out. Right? Yeah, and that's, that's our that's our part, right?
3: completely throughout the whole book.
1: Yeah, and also because a lot of this book, a lot of the book in, in the beginning parts especially. And uh, John, you've read the book, right? Yeah, is about, it's about um, trying to get you over that hump of worrying about it, right? Trying to s- simplify doing it because for any of you that like have like read spiels on things like soy sauce, you're like, oh my God, or like Hacho miso, you're like, oh my God, like, I gotta age it two years. I gotta age it a year, three years if it goes wrong, what? Blah, blah, you know what I mean? And so a lot of the first part of the book, is trying to get over that hump of worrying about it. And I think part of that is worrying about kind of which culture that you're going to use, which which strain you're going to use. But on the other hand, I had a question in from, um, I had a question in, I can't figure out who, it, who it's from, but the question was, what about people using Koji for cocktails? And I know, you know, um, you know, my partner at Existing Conditions, Don Lee, before we had to close for COVID, he was Experimenting, and I know he was talking to you, Rich, a lot about uh, koji and cocktails. And he was using a lot of the kind of stranger kojis because in cocktails, he wasn't doing kind of long age things. He was doing things that were relatively short aged and where, like, the strain, the flavor of the strain of koji itself was an important background note or note so for instance like the koji that produces a boat ton of citric acid and when for those of you that don't know like production of acid like which train is it that does the acid production guys uh Uh, uh, yeah
2: and uh the specific one that i gave don was the awamori um the okinawan version
1: so that's a black sport koji and that so so for those of you that are keeping track it's okinawan koji and the whole i correct me if i'm wrong but the idea is is that you wanted it to be a high acid because the acid was a preservative on the ferment prior to distillation. So because you were going to distill it, the acid wasn't going to come through to the final distilled product, but the acid was very helpful in preserving the product in the very hot Okinawan environment prior to distillation. True or false?
3: Well, yes, that's true, but it's a, it's twofold. It's also, it helps retard lactobacillus contamination. Right, right, right. Which can be- nice musty flavors and whatnot you know in, in an alcohol right that would that would have to be dank and dark versus like light and crisp
1: right so and then so people so if you get the conditions right though what's interesting is is because if you tell me I'm going to grow a uh, for instance if you say to someone hey uh, I'm going to I'm going to add malt or amylase enzyme to something like sweet potato, which Don did to clear out the starch with Koji, right? But if you're gonna do something like that, you're like, how sweet's it gonna be, right? Because there's only X amount of there's only X amount of byproduct in there. It's only going to get X amount sweet, and X usually isn't that high. So I thought in my head, I was like thinking the same thing with the acid. I was like, how high an acid are you actually gonna get? And the answer is much more acidic than you would think that you would get because it's not a breakdown product. Like it's actually producing the citric acid and it is real. You can make very, very, very tart things with it. Dude, if you eat like the black koji
3: or the brown koji, these species of lucientis, like grown on a medium, if you just eat the the
1: raw koji,
3: um, it tastes like you're eating Sour Patch Kids.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah and and for cocktail applications, I think it's quite interesting. So while it might be challenging to use in a food application, I think the application to, I'm only going to use a half an ounce of this, or I'm only going to use, you know, whatever I think is, is pretty interesting. You know, I know Don thinks it's interesting and that's why he's been kind of experimenting with it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think you have with cocktails, you've got both. So You've got, like, the short-term use of, like, yeah, you can make an amazaki out of the black koji that's, like, got all these great koji notes and, like, the, you know, the the honeysuckle and the the light mushroom flavors and all that stuff, plus the acid. But, like, for example, we did um, – uh, over a year ago, I made this shio koji using um, uh, cucumber water. Um, and it explain was, like, shio black koji real quick. So uh, shiokoji is like inoculated grain with a mold uh, mixed with water and salt, and it's allowed to ferment out. Um, and it's used as like a short-term, quick way to enhance the flavor of something, whether it's sautéed vegetables or like a, a grilled steak. Um, so I, I made one, a very diluted one, kept the salt at around 3%, uh, used um, – uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't cucumber. It was uh, watermelon. Uh, we had juiced a bunch and we were making watermelon pickles and all this stuff. So all the all the residual liquid from there um, and the black koji rice, um, at first it was kind of gross, but it sat for a year and it was fantastic. And, and there's this great uh, bartender here in Cleveland, Will Hollingsworth of the Spotted Owl, uh, gave him a bunch. And he was doing some crazy like gin fizzes with like this black watermelon shio koji liquid. Um, that he said we're we're banging.
1: Since you brought up the shiokoji and the water and the salt, another huge section of the book is trying to categorize different kinds of different kinds of products and different kinds of reactions. Right. So you have. So it's like the question is how long. So you like the things you talk about are. Because you're saying, hey, listen, when you're starting, start with a particular strain, like the you know white rice koji. Start with that. Boom. Now the question is, what do you want to have happen? And so it's controlling how much liquid is present, right? How much salt is present, right? And you choose those things, and you choose what kind of flavors are going to develop and over what time scale. And so you, know, you talk about paste versus application to solids, things that are, are soaked, and it's just breaking down, basically thinking about it. Trying to, trying to make for the reader, trying to turn Koji into part of their toolkit and having them think about it in terms of how am I looking, what am I looking for? Short-term effect or long-term effect? This episode is brought to you by Bend a Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. And here I am, I'll open up my box. Let me see here. It comes with a, a, a Delicacies France and an essentials. Ooh, red fife. Red fife is a wheat that is, became famous a couple of years ago as one of the old heritage wheat varieties that was grown in the East Coast. And so I'm gonna use this to make Sylvester Graham's actual graham bread because Eastern grown uh, wheat, much like red fife uh, wheat, was the wheat that Sylvester Graham uh, used to make the original graham breads, which bear no relationship to graham crackers. So I'm excited to make some bread with the red fife flour. Ooh, Nastasia. Mm. This He's living your life here. I have a bag of pearled uh, farro from Maine Grains, grown here There's in the U.S. I know you do. You're the, queen, you're the queen of farro, right? Yeah. And yet here it is in my house. Go to bendatable.com to start your own monthly subscription. Use the discount code HRN to get $20 off a new subscription. And Bend Table will donate $10 to support cooking issues and all of HRN's programming. All now right, we're back for real, people. Now, listen, uh, during these times of COVID, everyone's turning to things like baking bread, which is why I've mentioned this before. You cannot buy a grain mill now. And I was at the farmer's market and the supplier of artisanal wheats and grains at the farmer's market was like, we're out. We have nothing because everyone is baking now. And Nastasia, you hate the fact that, not Dax, I'm not talking about that, but in general, like the increase in bread baking you dislike, right? Yes. And what about, we haven't talked about it. What about like the increase of people making pickles and whatnot? Also hate? no. You're okay with pickles, but not doing bread? that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because
1: <laughs> pic- people don't post pictures of pickle on the internet. Is that why? I haven't seen a lot, but that's why.
3: Yeah, I guess so. Yeah.
1: Okay. But what I'm saying is, is that now is a perfect time to start doing a uh, Koji based work. And if you get the book, what you'll learn is, is that there it's not only like uh, you know, something that takes two months, two years, whatever to do, there's a lot of things you can do with Koji that can be done inside of a couple of days, true or false, folks. That is very true. Yeah. And so you take – and, you know, when we had the internet kind of explosion over here, and so I don't know how much of that was caught before, like what I was saying is, is that a lot of the book is – is is about, a lot of the beginning part of the book is about breaking down um, Koji, like Koji work into different kind of categories – a lot of it based on, uh, moisture, like how much water is present and how much salt is present because by adjusting those two things, you're kind of adjusting like which reactions happen and the rate at which reactions happen and kind of, uh, you know, whether we're looking at like short term, more seasoning things, more, more protein breakdown going on. So you want to talk about, talk about that a little bit or no?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, so one of the things that we have always practiced in terms of Koji once we started playing with it was its multipl- multitude of uses just from the standpoint of its versatility. So on the front end, when you start doing things that are more uh, sweet-based, you can easily gain sugars from pretty much any starch that you add it to. So not only adding it to grains, but um, if we're talking about, say, some fruits that are less than uh, desirables, you know, something you pick up at the grocery store that isn't all that great, and you really want something that um, tastes much better. All you have to do is just basically slap some koji on it, whether you vacuum bag it or you just make a little slurry of amazake with just equal parts water and and koji with you know some starch, uh, and just let it, let it sit for a couple days and. What's interesting is that you gain all this complexity as well as the, you know, the sugar uh, activity, sacrification, um, you know, and all these other flavor compounds that are going on. I mean, it's not, you know, a total flavor bomb like the long-term stuff that you do with a miso or soy sauce, but it's, you know, really interesting that you can just take, um, you know, a fruit or a vegetable and just marinate it and have these really interesting and awesome flavors. And that's some of the things that's some of the stuff we cover in the book in terms of, you know, not only are you harnessing the starches from the ingredients that you apply it to, but you're also, um, you know, building up the sugar such that you can go through any sort of um, natural fermentation process that you want, whether it be, you know, building up some lacto um, to be able to do kraut or some yogurt or some cultured butter. Um, you can also, you know, just let it hang out longer, and you know, add it to some kombucha, and then, you know, fire the sugar that way. So you can develop all these sugars, which is pretty amazing. And then also the on the other side of the coin, in terms of the um, the marinating side, is that you have these uh, protease enzymes that break down proteins fairly quickly into amino acids, and you can quickly yield a really delicious steak. Um, we like to refer to you know using koji uh, for marination as you know an automatic barbecue sauce because you're using the inherent starches of the grains plus the ins- inherent uh, proteins of the actual ingredient. You end up matching the flavors you know perfectly in terms of what you're adding because you're not adding anything else. Because if you think about marinades and the optimal marinade is the marinade that makes the base ingredient taste more like itself than any other ingredient, and this is what you can accomplish with koji. And these are the sort of things that we talk about in terms of lowering the amount of salinity uh, and adding more water such that you can get more, you know, infiltration and contact uh, to be able to create, you know, basically these flavors and these larger mass pieces of food that that you end up um, uh, eating immediately versus, you know, building a mash with lots of salt um, and less less water to be able to go throughout a longer processing time to create more complex flavors with waves of fermentation. So with koji, you can pretty much make any ferment that you want, and, and in a lot of ways, it makes it more delicious because of all the other um, things that come along for the ride with all the enzymes that are happening and then the natural progression of different waves of fermentation.
1: Man. Um... Yeah, let's also because I know we're going to run out. I want to talk more about specifically the structure of the book because one of the things that's interesting about the book is we have, we have a couple of things we got to talk about. So I'm just going to tell you all the things we're going to talk about, and you guys can choose the order. Uh, <laughs> the, the structure the structure of the book right is that you have a lot of people who are um, who have kind of mini essays within the book, and you've chosen a lot of um, chefs, some scientists, uh, some writers. Um, who have kind of put these micro essays in. And one of the things I think is interesting about these kind of micro essays is, is that it's not that they contradict what you say, but you don't normalize everyone's opinion to your own. And so it's, they really are sometimes different kind of perspectives, right? On, and it, that that was, that's kind of interesting. The The other thing is there's a section which is very kind of apropos of today on cultural appropriation of this. Um, and – but that dovetails into um, kind of the more the, – the newer applications. For instance, koji on fresh meat, which is I think a revelation. I know John had some when he was out uh, at Larder and was super interested in talking about the koji aging on kind of fresh meat. And then there's, there's the controversy of – because one of the other interesting things is in your book, you have at the end a HACCP plan. Uh, about how to do dry cured meats, right? And how to incorporate koji into your dry cured meat program. But then we should talk about the fact that there's this, the whole kind of koji on fresh meat is a brand new horizon really that no one has kind of worked with. And I don't know that anyone's really kind of figured out that unless you have um, the kind of microbiology of, of, or, the, or the, 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 the proof of how that works, right? And then uh, lastly, but not least, you cook your rice in the oven? In the oven, in the yeah. oven, in, in the oven with water and, and you say that you, – you listen to the way the French cook rice, the people who on all, – in all of earth, on the entire planet earth, everyone agrees that the French do not know how to cook rice. It, like everyone agrees that the French are the world's <laughs> worst rice cooks. The world's but worst not, rice cooks. But you're not eating that rice. OK. You're not
2: eating it. You're making it – you're using it as a medium to, to create koji. So it, it doesn't matter what it I, is I, in terms of edibility.
3: Right. The, the ko- it's a, it's, I mean I will describe it as a sentient living organism. Like it wants to live and wants to thrive and survive and reproduce. Like it doesn't care how well the French cook rice or how well the Japanese greens do. It just wants gelatinized starch.
0: Oh
1: my god. In a, so for those of you that don't know, here's what they do. They, they put all the rice in a hotel pan with water, throw it into the oven and walk away from it until it is quote-unquote done. And the stuff at the bottom, they're like, yeah, 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 it's mushy. But the thing is, you still have to fluff it, right? Because uh, for those of you that – Koji needs air to survive. It needs to be aerated to survive, right? It is an aerobic McGillicuddy. Is that not true? That is true. So (laughs) I would think that this kind of French, like, Mushenstein way of cooking rice would make less air. But what you're telling me is is that you can fluff even this French rice. Like, you can fluff it up to uh, uh, enough of a degree that you get good aeration for the koji, I guess is what you're telling me. Yeah. Yeah. I
3: mean, you totally do. And, and like, here's the whole thing. Like, if you were a sake maker and your goal was to – win every medal and be heralded as the best sake maker in the world, you wouldn't necessarily use this technique. But for large applications, like when we cook off this whole whole tail pan
1: of rice and the bottom, you know, half inch to an inch is kind of, it's clumped up. It's slightly mushy. Yeah. We're not talking, by the way, nice crispy bottom, like todding style stuff. We're not no. talking. No, yeah, no, no. No, no. <laughs> no, no. We're talking like, yeah, like it's, it's mush. It shook. We're talking like you'd get it at a French restaurant. But Don't here's
3: order rice thing. at a French restaurant. You're, you are mostly <laughs> – if if you're going to make sake, you, you, you're going to make an amazake. Or if you're going to marinate meat, you're going to use a shio koji or that sort of thing. So like these overcooked rices are great. Like when you make an amazake and you take your inoculated rice um, and you take some cooked rice, using that overcooked mushy stuff is the perfect application for that. Um, it's already broken down. Its, you know, it's, it's surface area is already, already increased because it's broken down so much and all that. So um, it, it, it gives you one cooking method that allows you then to, to be able to do multiple things um, that you would essentially need to cook separately to achieve. Um, and, and that's why we developed it. And it came down to like, you know, with me working in restaurants and having my own restaurant, like, there was a time I'd be like, you know, I'd need the dishwasher to do it. And I wasn't going to get into, like, the ins and outs of, like, inoculation and all that and what's happening with them. I'd just be like, listen, get this rice cooked and I'll deal with it later. Um, And that's why we developed it. It was like, at the base level, what's, what's the best that could happen? And then out of that, too, Dave, which was super interesting, you know, we found out, like, yeah, the koji will grow on – overcooked blown out spent rice grains it's not going to be as as different um, we end up with different products and like like our instant mirin that we have in the book that overcooked rice is perfect for it or like the instant amazaki that we have uh there you go it and it's got a use and it's got an application and lo and behold against everything all the research we did and everything we were told about how the rice has to be perfect we didn't see anything really noticeably suffering in enzymatic activity in terms of the end result of the product. So while yes, you could burn it through a lab and say, well, yeah, no, your enzyme activity is 30% down from what it would have been if the grain was perfect and all this. But <clears throat> for the end result and the deliciousness of the food and the usability of the ingredient, that that 30% drop in enzyme is is imperceptible when it comes down to like the real world application and use it's it's not noticeable i mean you know if if you're if you're in a, a restaurant or a maker that has the time the money the resources to like fully optimize all that to make things perfect like sure go ahead and do it but for most of us out there that's not realistic that's not how we run our businesses. That's not how we cook our food.
1: Well, also, you're um, telling me you don't think it has an effect. So why do it? If it's if it's gonna if it's gonna bork your if it's gonna bork your uh, production, and it's not going to make it more delicious, why do it? Well, I mean that's that's part of it too. Like, yeah, I mean, like you tell me you you think it tastes just as good, and so if it tastes just as good, and you can now actually do it as opposed to not being able to do it, then do it, right? And that's that's a lot of the case we make in the book. Yeah, well, I, just, you know, I, I had to bring it up because people are gonna. No, I mean, I had to bring it up. Oh yeah, yeah, Yo, yeah. You know, listen, Rich
3: and I get this these, this question all the time, and it's like, you know, if if you want to nerd out and get into the fun of it, like, <clears throat> sure, like optimize everything you can, have the strictest controls, throw all your resources at it. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, honestly, man, there isn't much of a difference. What's more important? is ingredient sourcing and how you care for the foods. So it's more important that you get, you know, if you want like the rice and the aroma of the rice and the nuttiness, all that to shine, get the best tasting, best quality rice you can start with. Same with your barley or your beans, you know? Um, Come on, we all know like commodity pork up against like some heritage duroc. Like there's a big difference in like the quality of the base ingredient. Um, in terms of like the flavor and the texture and all these things. Um, And, you know, ethics are a whole nother thing with that too. So um, that's way more important than, you know, some of these other things. Because if you get a base level of enzymatic activity, you're really not going to notice much of a difference in the end result of the product. Like it's just, in our opinion, it's just not there.
1: Well, you know what else is interesting about this discussion? I feel, especially for like listeners of this program is you know we you know we have people who are you know professionals right although none of us are working now but we have people who are professionals who are listeners and then we also have people who are working at home and like kind of and i think we don't often talk enough about how those kind of things are different like both want like quality but the person who's at home like has the ability – because they're only making small quantities – to completely nerd out, to get like each individual grain of rice perfect and then to kind of go on and do all those kind of micro micro controls where in a restaurant, you know, where you have to make X number of bazillion portions and then you have to make it relatively consistent not just today but like tomorrow, next week, next year and make it all at a reasonable price – with the staff that you happen to have at the time, different kind of problem. But both people interested in qualities, but like your drivers are very different. And I think we don't really, I think that's one of the things people don't talk about enough about the difference between cooking professionally versus like just experimentation at home. You know what I mean? Right. And I, I think part of our goal though was to like dispel that, right?
3: Because you have like the restaurants on the world's 50 best list who are taking the same approach that the home cook is taking? Yet, you know, I run a quick service delicatessen, and we we can't take that approach. I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. I don't have the labor. Um, you know, so it's it's about you know you know cost and and you know all those things there. So, um, you know, we we essentially our goal in writing this book was showing that whether you're a home cook or a professional cook we all don't know much about this and we're all trying to figure it out so let's kind of all start at the same place figure out your own personal optimizations that are best for your individual needs and pursue those yeah
2: and and
1: that's exactly and now why you want to talk have... next about Wait, what did you say rich
2: all right um and that's exactly why we um have so many perspectives in the book in terms of what you had talked about um with people and their ideas speaking in their own voices and combining them together is that we ourselves come from very different backgrounds in terms of what we grew up eating, what we started making, how we've developed our you know culinary expertise, um, and a lot of it you know in the in the more recent times of social media is as a result of collaborating with people who are also as enthusiastic about koji and <clears throat> and all the products that it makes that we just started exchanging these ideas. And everybody comes at it from a different background, a different place, a different culture, different desires. And it was important for us to to, to be able to convey that in such a way that that's how we learned, that's how we shared, that's how we gained all this knowledge is, is the result of a community working together. And we wanted to give people multiple voices because we may not be the right people to to convey you know a specific piece of information that we might not know as much about or that somebody really knows in depth and that's that's why it was um that's why it's key for us to to bring in all these voices and try to make it as cohesive as possible because we're we're not the sole experts we all 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 are the experts and that's that's what makes this beautiful about um you know, this Koji community, this fermentation community, preservation, um, it, it's just um, really amazing to be part of it. And uh, we want to show that there aren't we aren't the sole experts, that it's a matter of all of us working together to, to gain knowledge and improve our skill set. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Well, let's tackle this. Speaking of improving skill set and knowledge, let's tackle this next section f- next. So, for those of you who already know something about koji right you 're probably thinking things like sake, things like miso, things like soy sauce, um, maybe something like amazake, but in the book, this kind of new wave of Koji happening here in the u s that you know that you two are you know frankly leading the leading the pack on Koji in baked goods, Koji in meat applications, Koji in like regular kind of western dry salamis like just like koji in basically koji in a very wide like it's kind of like a Ko- koji catastrophe it's koji everywhere right so it's like it's like applying koji to places that you would never and products of koji to places that you wouldn't think and kind of this book i think is a lot about just opening up and showing that there's a whole huge range of things that you might not have thought of and i think the application that Guy, um, I know, Jeremy, you got a lot of press, getting a lot of press and a lot of just back buzz back in the, in the pro world on is the koji, uh, the koji aging of um, whole, like whole muscle meats that are intended to be cooked later, like, for instance, steaks. I've never had one. John had one when he was out there in Cleveland and said it was delicious. Correct, John?
2: Yes. Yes. Everything was very delicious over there.
1: Yeah. And so you want to talk about that like as a new kind of application and then maybe from there we can go on to the section where you were talking about what appropriation means to you versus like a love and a, a love of a, of a product and making new applications for it.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, with with using it this way in me and, and you know, early on too in, in some of these workings with me, we're actually growing the mold on the surface of of raw meats and then cooking and eating them you know early on some people were like well that's not necessarily the best way to get the enzymatic activity into the food like shouldn't you inject it or vacuum marinate it, or you know some of these things and we we're like yeah but i don't always and 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 a lot of uh, even professional cooks don't have some don't have a vacuum machine Um, you know, some don't have a realistic way to, to properly inject it where it's, where it's going to be evenly dispersed and, and work well. Um, on top of that, the culturing of the mold on the outside of meats or seafoods or whatever these proteins are, um, as long as you can pay attention to it, it's a pretty straightforward and easy process and doesn't really, uh, require much of a specialized setup. Um, you know, it was really just about ease of use and, and why wouldn't this work? And when when it started working and the controls that we we're using to do it were refined um, and we saw that it was delicious and that we were eating it ourselves and serving to other people and people weren't getting sick. They were enjoying it. Like all the check marks were hitting. Um, outside of like verified lab analysis and, and long-term verifiable study, um, we're like, something about this works. We're not a hundred percent sure why it's working, how it's working, but, and, you know, all the inner workings of what's happening, but we're proving anecdotally and through real-time usage that, that it's, it's working and it's delicious. Um, you know. It's, it's really interesting too, because when you, when you do a side by side comparison of just, you know, uh, let's say you have three, three steaks, three cuts, all the same cut, one just seasoned with salt um, or even plain, one that's uh, either marinated in amazaki or shiokoji, and then one where you've grown the mold on, there are drastic differences in flavor between all three of them intensely drastic differences in flavor and a lot of this testing too we paired up i work really closely with the awesome folks at certified angus beef um uh diana clark who's who's down there she's a bovine anatomist which is like one of the coolest jobs on the planet um she is literally a meat scientist and a butcher all at the same time um you know we did a lot of testing with like Their brand stamped aged products, you know, aged and carried out by her and at the time, Dr. Phil Bass, we were working with, um, compared to some of these Koji products. And it was like, it was like, wait a second. This steak that you grew mold on, you held at 90 degrees and high humidity for two days, grew mold on it, we cooked it and ate it, was eating. Very, very similar. It's still a different product, but very, very similarly in texture and flavor to a 30 day dry aged, or even in some cases, a 45 day dry aged. You know, as I said, we're not sure exactly what's going on, but we do know that it can be made safely, and we do know that it's super delicious, and you're getting a Product comparable to these ultra-aged products, which are very expensive because of the time invested in them, in 36 hours. Um, You know, it was just a a huge revelation to us, and something that's like it's super fun, it's unique, it's delicious. It it
1: hits all the check marks. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I've spoken to some scientists about it, and they're freaked out by it. Yeah, they're freaked. Well, because the thing is, is like, until something is – like, they hate anecdotal verification, right? Yeah. They they want verification verification. So, I mean, there's a lot of different – there's a lot of different – what's it called? There's a lot of variables, right? So – Oh, yeah. We all make the assumption – in general, true or false, we, we all make the assumption that the inside of whole muscle cuts is relatively okay and that nothing's going to get in there, right? So then we're assuming that, like, unless you stab it or something, that we're relatively good. I've heard scientists get mad at me for that, right? Here's why I'm saying this. It's because, like, you think about, if you're going to cook the outside of a of, a, of a something, you're going to kill most of the surface bacteria. I was interesting because I was reading... Um, I was reading some, some work about um, cultures that eat uh, spoiled meats and like sure. whether, whether or not they get sick, like literally spoiled meats, right? Or like spoiled, like hung high birds, things like this. Um, and, you know, and so, you know, the, the thing that food scientists are worried about are enterotoxins that are produced by bacteria that are not destroyed by heat so that even the cooking process is not going to eliminate them. Uh, And then right before we got on, so I didn't get a chance to finish it, I was reading where someone was writing an article on whether or not like you can get uh, staph-based enterotoxin on raw meat and why it tends to only happen on already cooked meat, right? So there perhaps is some sort of internal safety mechanism provided by the growing koji and the the natural way that the meat is, right? But the thing is, is that especially if it has an application like this, where you're saying that there's an economic reason to do it, it seems like you should be able to go get big beef to, to shell out the the hundred grand to do the study. No.
3: Well, and that's, that's in the works right now. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something we've been working on for a number of years. And it's, it's something that, that, um, you know, finally, after, after a few years of like really working hand in hand with them, like we're, we're, we're getting there. Like COVID's, Definitely going to be throwing a wrench in some things,
1: okay.
3: um, but that's that's the idea. You know, there's there's a lot of moving parts to that too, right? Um, were my numbers about
1: right? Is it about a hundred grand? I it uh, it could be considerably more than that. Really? Oh, because they're, are they going to prove multiple things? We're li- I, there's a
3: lot to prove there. right um, We're also looking at like long term laboratory viability of this, like. I, I mean, we're, we're potentially looking in millions, uh, mm. you know, course of a five or 10 year study, uh, looking at every variable involved in this. And then on top of that, the development of
1: foolproof, you know, hazard plans for large scale production
3: of things along these lines.
1: Um, so that, so, that millions of dollars, that's also like organoleptic study, right? Not just safety study then that's actual oh, like yeah. process study.
3: Oh, oh yeah 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 that's 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 like going from essentially nothing
1: lab verifiable to something on store shelves right 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 because you know because in general for people who don't know like if you have a question and the the early one when we were dealing with dry because dry cured meat has a plans of which there's one in the back of the book uh, you know if you weren't following like the procedures this is back in the day that the government, right wanted you to follow, you had to independently verify. And so what would happen is, is that you would hire a lab, they would come in, they would take your raw product and inoculate it with nasty crap, put it through your process and then verify that whatever process you were putting it through consistently killed said nasty crap. And that's how you would verify that your product was, that your procedure was safe. Um, But I guess in this case, it's even a little more complicated because there it's just is your variant of something that we accept good versus this thing that we have no idea about is it good in general right i guess it's a slightly harder problem with koji right exactly exactly
3: and one of the reason is because like this direct culturing technique is it's new we just you know it's it's really even though we've been working with this mold for thousands of years across the world doing it in this way um, as we've done, and keep in mind, we've done this with other molds for centuries or thousands of years, uh, but this one particular hasn't
1: been used in that way. So we have, to, we've just got to start at at zero point. And for those of you who uh, you know are keeping track of this argument and are going to say something like, "We do this all the time. We we hang our sausages for like forty eight hours at ninety eight degrees at high humidity." No, 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 listen, people, that is a that is an acid producing ferment and you keep the high temperature and something like that so that the uh, acidity uh, the, the acidity rises, the pH drops and that is in effect a preservative effect. So like when you have like um, you know uh, Andy Ricker, whether or not it's legal, so I'm not saying he does it for his restaurant, but when he' at home he's doing his fermented wings and his fermented ribs, that's an acid ferment where the pH is dropping. So you're increasing safety over time while you're keeping it at a high temperature. The Koji, that we're talking about here is not an acid ferment, and that's what makes it interesting as regards to safety, because the high temperature inoculation on the koji is not accompanied by a, uh, a concomitant uh, pH drop. Is that correct? What I'm saying? Right, exactly, and that's kind of like when developing the technique, like
3: you know, we we add salt and sugar to the meat before we we put um, you know the rice flour and spore coating on there. Um, you know, we 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 Try to introduce other safety controls because we don't have that pH drop with this, and we're not looking for a pH drop with this because this is meant
1: to be eaten just like a, a fresh steak would be. Good, good. Uh, by the way, good, good. Uh, late in the show, use of spore. I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> me too. Thank you. <laughs> and i have lost track of exactly how much time we have but we're definitely over an hour so we should all right uh, on the
1: way out just why don't you talk about the the uh, i know you were worried about it because you actually addressed it in the book why don't you just talk about appropriation and then we'll be out
3: oh and can we can we also just really quick i'll let rich take appropriation um but can we say uh you know there's many places people can get the book with covid going on right now I know my local bookstore here in Cleveland, Visible Voice Books, I can order through them just as I would Amazon or someplace else. And it keeps a local bookstore running. It keeps money in my community. You can also get it directly from Chelsea Green. And they are fulfilling orders 10 times faster than Amazon is at this point. Uh, people are ordering from Chelsea Green and getting the book two days later. Whereas we're hearing from from people who ordered it or pre-ordered from Amazon, there's a week or two week delay in some cases. Uh, so you know, we just want to make sure that you know, contact your local business. Uh, even some of them may be shut down; they still may be able to behind the scenes fulfill some some uh, orders for you and get it shipped to you. Yeah, All right, and with that, bar- I'm gonna
1: let Rich have the last word. But thanks to uh, Jeremy and Rich for coming on. The book is Koji Alchemy. It's out later this week. Uh, as Jeremy said, uh, try to get it from your your LBS if possible, um, and uh, yeah, Rich. So Rich is going to talk about um, about well appropriation in general, what it mean what it means to him, and uh, kind of how you address it in the book.
2: Uh, so in terms of cultural pro- uh, appropriation, you know, we understand the concerns behind it, but it just comes down to um, we, you know, I, I like to think about it in the way of. You know when you are developing a recipe um you know even if it's back in the day when you have specific ingredients in a specific environment with whatever equipment you have you develop a specific recipe based on what what you're just using at the at that point in time and at some point it becomes delicious and it becomes well received and you know once these things are well received people they gain popularity there becomes a process it becomes a standard And then people start, you know, wanting it from all over the world. And in this day and age, we have whatever product you want, whatever equipment you want, and, you know, whatever ingredients you want to add to it. And then our idea is that, you know, with this accessibility, you can pretty much make whatever you want. And with Koji, you have the enzymes, you have the fermentation starter, you have you know, all sorts of things, sweet or savory, that you can do with no bounds. We just see, we just see it as a way to make food more delicious. Um, and it doesn't matter where it comes from. As with every cook, as you go throughout your life, you learn from all sorts of people of all walks of life. Uh, and then you begin to, you obviously respect the traditions and the, precise, the precision of, you know, very specific ingredients and products and you learn exactly how to make them. And yes, you can, you can you know, spend your entire life to make the best soy sauce ever, uh, but not, a, not all of us are tasked to do that. A lot of us are adventurous and wanna be able to make whatever it is that we want, and we can do that,
1: and that's the power of Koji. And you're specifically not putting yourself out in this book as the expert of the traditional techniques, it's quite the opposite.
3: Exactly. Quite
1: the opposite.
3: And keep in mind, no less than a dozen different cultures throughout Asia and Southeast Asia, like claim koji or whatever their native word for the mold is as their own. Um, you know, so already before we even got, you know, the Western world even got hip, um, you know, you have it being used across cultures. Like it it it's something that's universal,
1: and that's what's so fantastic about it. All right, and we'll leave it with that. Thanks, uh, thanks, folks, for coming on. The book is Koji Alchemy: Cooking Issues*. Cooking Issues is powered by SimpleCast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, HeritageRadioNetwork.org connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network.